Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. I'm grateful for each of you. Welcome once again to the Vineyard. My name's Christian Root. I'm one of the pastors here. And, and again, just, just very briefly want to lay out a, an announcement for you. Recently, we as a church began partnering with a company called Tithely. And Tithely is going to to make it really easy for you to give your, your tithe or your offering here at the church. And so I just want to briefly outline for you four ways that you can now give your tithe or offering to the Lord. Of course, you can continue to drop off any checks or, or cash in the back, as always. If checks or cash work for you, then by all means, please continue to do so. But now you can also give via an app as well. So if you go to the app store of your choice and you type in Tithely, it's just the word tithe, T-I-T-H-E dot L-Y. It's a green logo. It's behind me. You can uh, give via an app and it's really convenient. You can set up reminders to give and you can track all of your giving history. You can continue it to give online as well by going to gcvineyard.org and clicking on the give tab. And, and two of the features that I'm really thankful for that, that uh, Tithely offers us as a church is that via the app or, or online, you can set up recurring giving. And so that was the first thing I did. I went onto our website and I said, I want to, to type in my financial information and then on every Friday, it just automatically gets charged to my credit card. And so I want to automate those things in my life that are most important to me. And so every Friday, I just get an email that says, your tithe has gone to the church. And so I know moving forward that whether I'm here or gone, if I'm on vacation, if, I, you know, if I'm sick, if there's a snowstorm, I, I know that, that the Lord's getting my tithe. And so you can set up recurring giving weekly, bi-weekly, whatever interval you would like on the website or uh, on the app. And then lastly, you can give via text now as well. And so every week we're going to put the text number up uh, on the screen. You can just put that in your contact list under Vineyard Tithe. You type in give just once into that text box and it sends you to a remote site where you put in your financial information just once and then moving forward, whatever amount you type in, it just automatically gets charged to your card or, or taken out of your checking account, whatever you would like. So you type in five, five, 55 bucks are, are, are headed out of your account. So really, really easy, really convenient. We're, we're not doing this because again, we're, we're trying to you know, build an addition onto the church. We just wanna make this really easy for, for you to, uh, to give your, your tither or your offering to the Lord. So that is my little spiel and we are done. All right. And now, church, I am excited to continue our new series this week that we've entitled simply The Kingdom of God, The Kingdom of God. And over the next several weeks, as I shared last week, we will be exploring and examining different aspects of the kingdom. And today, as we continue our series, we're going to be turning to a parable that Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, a parable which has much to teach us, church, about the kingdom of God. But before we open up to today's text, I would love to pray. So would you pray with me now? Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you have, as your children, invited us into your kingdom. That you've invited us to come and to live under your reign and rule. What a gift, what a, what a wonderful, precious gift. And I, I pray, Father, that in the 
the coming weeks and, and, and even this morning, that you would set us on fire for your kingdom, that we would be kingdom people, that we would long to worship our king, that we would long to bring others into the kingdom, that we would long to see your kingdom on this earth extended until you come back, Jesus, and fully establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Make us kingdom people, Father. Set us on fire for your kingdom. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would put power on my words now. Would you empower me? I can do nothing apart from you. Would you give me your anointing, your unction, your, your help in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, church, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. So if you have a Bible with you, you can head there now. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. So buckle in. Here we go. Matthew chapter 20, this is what we read. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now let's stop there for a second. Some of you might be aware that throughout Matthew's gospel, he typically refers to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Well, the majority of of Matthew's target audience were Jews. And and in Matthew's day, in order to to show respect for God, the, the Jews of Matthew's day typically avoided using the name God. And so in order to be sensitive to the sensibilities of the Jews of his day, Matthew typically uses the phrase, kingdom of heaven. All right, let's start over. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were first hired, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Amen. Amen. Now, church, what what does this parable teach us about the kingdom of God? Well, let me suggest three truths that Jesus' parable communicates to us. To begin... To begin, Jesus' parable teaches us, church, that the kingdom of God is ruled by a king who is sovereign. By a king who is sovereign. By a king, in other words, who does as he pleases. The landowner in Jesus' parable is clearly meant to depict or or represent the Lord, the the king of the kingdom of God. And and Jesus offers us a, a picture in this parable of a landowner who defies the expectations and conventional practices of the day. The landowner continued to look for workers throughout the day, even though he didn't need the help. 
even though this surplus of workers would have hurt his bottom line. And inexplicably, the landowner paid the workers who, who had worked for an hour the same wage as, as those who had been working since sunup. This is a picture of a king, of a god who cannot be boxed in. A king whose actions cannot be predicted. A king who refuses to cater to the assumptions or accepted practices of others. A king who is sovereign and does as he sees fit. And we discover, church, don't we, this picture of a sovereign king who refuses to be hampered by convention throughout every page of scripture, don't we? We follow a king who told a 75-year-old man named Abram that he was going to be the father of many nations. A king who chose the younger son, Jacob, over the older brother Esau. A king who defeated the Midianites in the time of Gideon by shrinking Gideon's own army. A king who would send his own people into exile in Babylon. We follow a king church who sent a baby to a teenage virgin to serve as his own representative. A king who defeated the dark powers of this world, not by the sword, but by the beams of a cross. We follow a king who sent his own son, his own son, to die for the sins of the world. And a king who generously, who wonderfully, gloriously raised that son out of the grave only three days later. And this truth that our king, church, cannot be boxed in, that he refuses to cater to our expectations and, and assumptions, that this truth, friends, regularly brings us to a point of decision. As followers of Jesus, we are frequently forced to ask ourselves, will I trust in the care of my king even when I cannot understand his choices? Will I trust in his provision and his protection when I am utterly confused with his plan? In John chapter 6, church, Jesus taught a, a large crowd of his followers. And on this particular occasion, Jesus shared these rather enigmatic words. He, he said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And after hearing this perplexing message, we, we read that, that most of Jesus' followers deserted him. And, and so following this mass departure, Jesus eventually turned toward the 12 disciples, his closest companions, and he, and he asked if they were going to leave too. Do you remember this scene? He said, are you guys headed out as well? And in verse 68, Peter famously replied to Jesus with these words. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now notice, church, what Peter did not say in that moment. Peter did not say... I can't believe these so-called followers of, of yours, Jesus, are deserting you right now. I, I can't believe that they're so thick they don't understand your teaching. Clearly, you were speaking metaphorically. Clearly, Jesus, when telling us to eat your, your flesh and drink your blood, you were pointing forward to your eventual death when you will offer your, your body and your blood for our sins on the cross. And, and obviously, Jesus, your command to eat your body and drink your blood was an allusion to the communion meal by which your followers in the future will remember your sacrificial death until your eventual return. No, Peter didn't say that. Because Pete and the other disciples were just as confused as those who had walked away. They were just as perplexed as everyone else. And so what did Peter say to Jesus? 
He, he said, in effect, Jesus, we're, we're just as confused as the others. We don't, we don't understand this teaching. But what else can we do but follow you? For you have the words of eternal life. And so, friends, listen to me. Listen. Because you follow a God who cannot be boxed in, because you, you follow a God who is sovereign and who refuses to defer to our expectations, to our best laid out plans, to, to our conceptions of what our future will look like, because you follow a God who is subject to none but ruler of all, there will be times when you are left utterly confused by his choices. Times when his decisions or his lack of intervention just leaves you reeling. And your only hope of following the Lord for the long haul, of following Jesus for the long haul, is to become someone who, who follows the example of Peter. To become someone who declares, listen, I, I don't know why I'm facing such opposition at work. I, I don't know why my five-year-old nephew is still at children's. I, I don't know why my girlfriend ended the relationship. I don't, I don't know why my son is still struggling with addiction. I, I don't know why my marriage is still dangling by a thread. But where else can I go, Father, when I know that you alone are king? And where else can I go, Lord, when I know that your words are true? And where else can I go, Lord, when I know that every knee will one day bow before you? And where else can I go when I know that your love alone satisfies? Amen. Friend, I don't know what my next 10 years are going to look like, all right? I certainly couldn't have predicted my last 10, and I... I definitely don't know what yours are going to look like either. But I pray, friends, that in times of both celebration and confusion, that our words will be the same. That we will continue to declare, where else can we go, Lord? To, to whom else can we turn when, when we know that you alone are worthy of our praise? Continuing on, church, Jesus' parable teaches us that the, the kingdom of God is ruled by a king who is just. You need to understand, if you're coming into the kingdom of God, if you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, you are coming to a king who is just. Now, what was the complaint of those who were hired at the beginning of the day? They were angry because they received the, the same payment, a denarius, that those who were hired at 5 p.m. at the very end of the work they received. And so, of course, they, they cried out, that. that this is not fair. This is not right. We can sympathize with their objections. But let us pay attention to how the landowner responded. This is what the landowner said in verse 13. But he, the landowner, answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? The landowner replied to the grumblers and he said, there's been no breach of contract here. You committed to working for one denarius, which is the typical day laborer's wage, and that is what you have been paid. At best, the landowner says, you could accuse me of being overly generous, but you cannot accuse me of being unfair. Or unjust. There, there has never been anyone, friend, who is as just, as fair-minded, as unbiased as our God. He has never broken a single promise to another. 
He, he has never wiggled out of a commitment. He has never purposely deceived one of his followers. He is altogether just. He is altogether fair. And, and yet this complaint that the Lord is unjust, that the Lord is unfair, this complaint is one of the most common accusations leveled at our king by human beings. And if many of us were honest, we would say that, that even if we would never articulate it out loud, a fairly common objection within our own hearts as followers of Jesus is that the Lord is not fair, that the Lord's dealings with us have not been just. And so I, I want to explore this dynamic for, for just a bit. Why is it, friends, why is it, church, that, that more often than we'd like to admit, we struggle to believe that God is just? Let me offer you three brief reasons. Just touching the tip of the iceberg here, but let me give you three reasons why we struggle to believe that, that God is just. Number one, we struggle to believe that God is just because of our own impatience. Because of our own impatience. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said, the person with whom you are most impatient in your life is not your husband, not your wife, it's your God. You might think, friends, that you are most impatient with your spouse or, or child or sibling or your pet. But there is no one of, of whom you and I are more demanding, no, no one whom we try to hurry, to rush, to move faster than our king. Listen, I, I've never offered a more disingenuous request to the Lord than when I've ended a, a time of prayer with the appeal and may this prayer, Father, be answered in your timing. Can, can I just be honest here? I, I say it with my lips, of course. May, may, may your timing, may your timing be accomplished. Say it with my lips, but what my heart really means is, and, and let your timing, Father, be in line with my timing. Let, let your schedule agree with mine. Is it safe for me to be that honest here? I just need to know, okay? Is it safe? Do I need to go, or can I... Is this a safe place for me just to, okay, good, good. That's, that's the church we want to be. Friends, there is virtually no quicker route to disillusionment in the Christian faith. Virtually no way, no easier way to fall into the belief that, that God is unjust than by trying to impose our schedule onto the Lord, than by trying to force our God, our King, to accommodate our preferred timeline. We often accuse God of being unjust, not because he's broken a promise to us, but because he's not working as quickly as we'd like. And that's why the story of the fall of Jericho is so helpful for us. Do you remember this story? In the book of Joshua, the Lord told Joshua, the leader of God's people, to march around the city of Jericho for six days. And on the seventh day, Joshua was told to march around the city with the people of God seven times. The Lord told Joshua that after they marched around the city on the seventh time, on the seventh day, the priests were to blow their trumpets, the people were to yell, and the walls of Jericho were to fall down, that they were going to fall on the seventh day after the seventh march around. But what's interesting about this story, why I bring it up, is, is that we're given no indication that Joshua relayed this plan to the rest of the Israelites. No indication that he clued them in, that they knew what was going to happen. And, and so I can just imagine after day one of marching around the walls, the Israelites heading back to their campfires at the very end of the day and saying to, to one another, well, 
gosh, that was an interesting day. Didn't, didn't see that coming. Just kind of doing a lap and heading back. That was interesting. And I can imagine that after days two, three, and four, that the, the Israelites started whispering to one another, are, are, we sh- are we sure Mo picked the right guy here? I mean, this guy just seems to be fixated with walking around the city in circles. This is, this is bizarre. And on days five and six, church, I imagine it getting really bad. I, I can picture guys drawing straws to see who is going to go talk to Joshua, who is going to go set him straight and say, what are you doing? And by the seventh day, when the Israelites were walking around the city for the fifth or the sixth time, I imagine it, it, it probably at that point just got ugly, right? You know, coups were probably being plotted. A, a union was probably being formed. But petitions were making their way through the ranks at this point. The, the people had had enough. What is this? But then finally, after the seventh lap on the seventh day, the walls came tumbling down. And friends, think of what it would have been lost. Think of how the Israelite story would have been shifted if they had given up, if they had headed back to camp after the fifth or sixth lap on the seventh day. And friends, some of you right now are struggling to believe that God is just, that the Lord cares, because you've been praying, you've been crying out before the Lord, and you have seen such little progress. After all of your praying and after all of your effort, you've still feel stuck in the same besetting sin? Or or you still haven't found a medication that addresses your problem? Or or your best friend still wants nothing to do with the Lord? Or or you still find yourself scrambling to get by financially at the end of every month? But friends, some of you don't realize that you are on lap six on day seven. Some of you, you... You just don't even realize that you are so close to seeing breakthrough and that now is the time to persevere, that now is the time to keep marching. Some of you don't realize that the, the reason the Lord hasn't yet intervened is not because he's unjust. It's not because he's aloof and uncaring, but rather because he knows that you will be a different person at the end of your Jericho march than on the day that you started. He isn't interested in your timeline because he is more concerned with your transformation. And so again, you need to keep marching, friends. You need to keep pressing on because the Lord's delays are always meant for your development. Keep going. Secondly, we struggle to believe that God is just because we don't understand the Lord's discipline. We don't understand the Lord's discipline. Listen, the Bible is clear that followers of Jesus, we are never punished for our sins. No, our rightful punishment was absorbed by Jesus when he died on the cross in our place. But as followers of Jesus, we are disciplined by our loving Father. We are. Hebrews 12 says this, Endure hardship as discipline. Receive hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may what? Share in his holiness. 
We are told to receive hardship here, again, as discipline from the Father, to, to receive trials and pain as discipline from, from a loving Father who desires to change our hearts. Listen, here is the universal truth that all good parents understand. If a child has not been disciplined in love at home, that child will be disciplined without love in the world. So here, here's what I mean. If a child isn't disciplined in love at home, if boundaries are not set in place, if rules are not enforced, if there are no real consequences for inappropriate behavior, then, then later in life that, that child will be disciplined without love by the world. That child who, who never learned boundaries, who never learned self-control, will be disciplined by future employers who let them go because of their inability to show up on time. Or that child will, will be disciplined by future landlords who kick them out of their apartments because they got behind on their payments. That that child will be disciplined by future educators, by teachers and principals who are, who are less tolerant with their outbursts or, or attitude than their parents at home. And, and in some cases, that, that child will even be disciplined by the criminal justice system, a, a system which doesn't tend to give second or third or fourth Chances as readily as some parents. Now, now listen. Listen, if, if you're a parent here with an adult or, or teenage son or daughter that is struggling right now, do not hear me saying that this is indicative of a lack of good parenting on your part, okay? Because every family, every child is unique. And as parents, we are all too aware of the fact that we cannot make choices for our children. I'm surprised I didn't get an amen on that one. But friends, the point still remains. The point remains. A, a parent introduces short-term pain into their child's life by disciplining them at home in love so that their child might not experience the long-term pain of being disciplined by a loveless world. And our father, who is a wonderful father, who is a wise father, he understands this principle as well. Our father disciplines us in his love he allows illnesses and relational conflict and difficult bosses and traffic accidents to persist because he wants us to avoid the, the heartache of being disciplined by a loveless world or, or succumbing to the temptation of a loveless enemy of our souls. Thank God for the discipline of the Lord that, that pulls us back from the edge that keeps us from making stupid decisions that blow up our life. If there is anything in my life that, that I have neglected for far too long, it is thanking the Lord for the discipline that kept me from, from just falling off the rails. Thirdly, church, we struggle to believe that God is just because we are all legalists at heart. We are all legalists at heart. Now, what, what does the term legalist mean? You might, might have heard that, and if you've been around church for a while, you're a legalist or legalism. What, what, is, a, what is a legalist? A legalist is someone who believes that through their own moral effort or sacrifices that they can be accepted by God. Someone who believes that the harder we work and the more sacrifices we make, the more upright our character, the more deserving we are of the gifts and the favor of the Lord. That's, that's why the... The concept of karma, which is completely unbiblical, has just taken root in our culture, right? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. If disaster or tragedy has come into your life, it's because karma is getting you. Problem is, is, is absolutely not biblical. 
Praise the Lord that karma is not real. And, and church, again, apart from the influence of the spirit within us, all of us naturally tilt toward legalism. We all naturally tilt toward the belief that we should receive what we've earned. And this was the mindset of those who were hired first in the parable, was it not? How have we not been paid more, they asked. We put in the most work through the heat of the day. We're deserving of the highest pay. But friends, listen to me. If you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, the greatest kindness ever shown to you was the Lord's refusal to give you what you deserve. The greatest mercy ever extended to you was the Lord's willingness not to reward you based on your own merits. For when you had no faith to speak of, he rewarded you with spiritual sights. And when you had no desire for Jesus, he rewarded you with a new heart. And when you had no understanding of his ways, he rewarded you with wisdom. And when you had no Christian brothers or sisters, he rewarded you with a spiritual family. And when you had no hope, and I had no hope for a real future, he rewarded us with eternal life. The truth is, friends, we will spend all of eternity thanking Jesus that we were not given what we deserved. And so the next time, friend, that you're left struggling to understand the justness or the fairness of God, the next time you're left thinking, it's not fair that I was passed for another promotion, or it's not fair that it's, I'm still single, it's not fair that I have all these health complications, it's not fair that my kids look so far away, it's not fair that the coach never plays me, it's not fair that I have so little in my retirement funds. The next time you find yourself wrestling with the fairness of God and his ways, you will have the opportunity to say, friend, but I thank you, Jesus, that you have not dealt with me according to what is fair. I, I thank you that I have never been given what I de deserved, for I deserve death and I was given life. I, I deserve the wrath of God and I yet I was given your robe. Thank the Lord he does not treat us as we deserve. Lastly, church, Jesus' parable teaches us that the kingdom of God is ruled by a king who is generous. This is our last point. The kingdom of God is ruled by a king who is generous. Church, why did the landowner in Jesus' parable keep coming back to the marketplace to collect more workers? Was it because he, he underestimated the amount of help that he, he needed for the harvest? So that he continually needed to head back to the marketplace to to collect more help? Of course not. He was not an incompetent landowner. No, no, the landowner returned over and over to the marketplace for the sake of, of those who had not yet been selected, for the sake of those who were still sitting around. In a day when, when there was no social services to speak of, no, no government assistance to speak of, the landowner wanted to give as many workers as possible the opportunity to provide for their family. And those who were left standing around at the, the end of the day would have been those workers who were deemed too old or too weak to be of much help in the fields. No neighboring farmers were willing to hire them. And so the landowner invited them to come and work for him at the end of the day. Not because they, they were useful, but because they needed his help. And, and for, friends, why were all the workers given a denarius? Well, because again, in Jesus' day, this was the daily wage of a field hand. Because this was the amount needed to provide for one's family. 
And so the workers hired at the end of the day were, were given a denarius, not because they earned it, but because that's what was needed. That's what they needed to survive. Jesus describes here a landowner who hires men who aren't that helpful and gives them a payment they haven't deserved because the landowner is more interested in the welfare of the workers than he's interested in his own economic gains. Jesus describes here a landowner of incredible generosity. Church, the truth is you will never find another friend, another lover, a parent as generous as our king, as generous as the Lord. You will never find another individual, for example, as generous with their time. For there is never a moment, friend, when the Father's ears are closed to you. There is never a time when when your prayers are met with a busy signal. There there is never a time when you're asked to wait, when he puts you on hold, when he fails to give you his full attention. In, In your busyness, friend, you might not have time for him, But there is never an occasion when the Lord doesn't have time for you. You call to him at 2 a.m. in your bed, and he is there. You you speak to him in your shower, and he is listening. You you ask for his help at work, and he's at your side. You wake up, and you request his assistance, and he is with you, friend. He is so generous with his time. And you will never find another individual, friend, more generous in their assistance, more, more willing to offer help than the Father. The Father. Second Chronicles 16:9 says this. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. This is New King James here. I just I just love to and fro. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. The, lo- the Lord's arm doesn't need to be twisted in order to provide us with help. He doesn't have to be coaxed in offering us his assistance. No, his his eyes are scanning the horizons of the earth, we're told, looking for opportunities to bless, looking for opportunities to intervene on behalf of those who trust in him, those who are loyal to him. Our eyes run to and fro, if we're honest, looking for people to impress. Or our eyes run to and fro looking for meals to eat or people to date or, or money to earn or accomplishments to attain. But the Lord's eyes run to and fro looking for opportunities to help. We want to show ourselves strong on behalf of our egos. We want to show ourselves strong on behalf of our reputation or our career or our pride. But the Lord, he longs to show himself strong on behalf of others. How beautiful, how wonderful is our Father. If if no one else is going to do it, I'm just going to... Praise him myself. How how amazing is he that he longs to show himself strong on behalf of you. And lastly, I'm I'm obviously far too riled up, so I'm going to close here. You you will never find another friend, another individual who extends grace more generously than the king of the kingdom. Many of you here might be familiar with what is called a a clue report. When considering buying a home, you can request a a clue report, which provides a a list of any insurance claims made on on that particular home in the last seven years. And and so if there was flood damage or fire damage or, you know, a Michigan fan lived there for some time, you can find that out. And, And these issues will be disclosed. I'm just trying to wake you up. All right, come back. Here we go. Here we go. Leaning in. 
And friends, this is very helpful information, of course, because if in the reading of the report, you determine that, that this home that you're looking to buy has had too many issues, too many problems, you, you can walk away from your purchase of this home. It's very convenient. And we need to understand, church, that the Father has the clue report on us. He has seen the report outlining everything that we've ever done, ever said, ever thought. And he's already seen everything that we will do, that we will say, that we will think. All of our issues and problems and inconsistencies and betrayals, all of our sins are before him. And yet, unlike any wise or discerning home buyer, after reviewing our clue report, our father, he refuses to walk away. He refuses to back out of the deal. If we have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus, he refuses to discard us in search of another person with less baggage. Listen. Let me make this personal as I close. To, to be admired from afar is nice, right? I, I mean, just by virtue of, of my role, by, by virtue of the fact that I'm a pastor, there are times where I, I'm admired by far just because I'm a pastor. That's, that's nice. And to be respected by colleagues is encouraging. And, and to be loved by close friends, this is truly wonderful. It is. It's a gift. But to know that someone has read my entire clue report, and, and, and to know that there is, a, there is someone who has access to all of my failings, to all of my shortcomings, to all of my worst moments of embarrassment or, or regret that are almost, almost too painful to recall. And yet to know that he still desires me, <laughs> to know that he still wants me, to know that he, he still invites me to work in his harvest field and, and still pays me what I haven't earned, this means everything. It's everything.